chapter 28. We've got the big teal book. It's page 147. So chapter 28 of baptism. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. So let's consider what that means for a second. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. A sign is a symbol. It means it has meaning. It's communicating something. The idea of a sign. Baptism is a symbol. It communicates doctrinal content. It does not communicate that doctrinal content by itself as though it's able to project the words into your mind. It communicates the doctrinal content with the context of the preached or read word. And so the word of God must always accompany sacraments because the word of God gives the explanation. (coughs) So a sacrament is a sign. A sacrament is also a seal. When you hear the word seal, you might think of a noise-making water animal. You might also think of the idea of something that permanently locks someone in. That is an error. That is not what's being talked about here. The idea is not that baptism seals in your salvation. It's not like it guarantees your salvation. That is a misinterpretation associated with baptismal regeneration and with the mass. How is it a seal? Okay, well, let's think about this. It's not a seal as in it locks it in. A seal is being used to refer to the idea of it's a marker on something for others to observe. Okay, so baptism itself is a symbol, and when a person gets baptized, they've got a mark on them. It's the mark of the Lord. There's a mark on them. They are marked as a person who is a part of the covenant community. So baptism itself is a symbol, and baptism marks people as a part of the covenant community. So baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament. When you see New Testament, you probably think the last 27 books of the Bible. But what is the point? Is the point that baptism is a sacrament that happens to be communicated about in the last 27 books of the Bible? No. The point is, and why do we call that the New Testament, is because the New Testament, or the New Covenant, okay, in, in Greek it's the, it's the New Diatheke, okay, it's the Diatheke means covenant, and it's translated as testament sometimes. In Hebrew, berit. A covenant. So it's the new covenant. The New Testament is just another way of referring to the new covenant. What's the new covenant? The new covenant is the covenant of grace in its final administrative stage before Christ returns. So baptism is a sign of the covenant of grace. It's a seal of the covenant of grace for the era of the new covenant. What's the covenant of grace? And we have the covenant of works given to Adam in the garden. Do this and live. And there's a covenant of grace. The just by faith shall live. That's the covenant of grace. In Genesis 3, the covenant's given to Adam. 
In Genesis 9, it's given to Noah. In Genesis 15, it's given to Abraham. In Exodus, it is given to Moses. It's given to David. And then, lastly, the covenant of grace is given to Christ in the New Testament. These administrations change the outward symbols used. Animal sacrifice given to Adam. Noah continues with animal sacrifice and there's added the ability to eat meat. So now there's the eating of meat in the sacrifices. With Abraham, circumcision is added. With Moses is given all of the Mosaic and Levitical law. With David, the temple replaces the tabernacle. And with Christ, all of that is taken away and we have bread, wine, and water. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, the new administration of the covenant of grace. It is ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ. What for? Well, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, although that's part of it. When a person is baptized, there's a recognition of the person being a part of the visible church. But also, baptism is unto the one baptized a sign, and for him a seal. It's a mark on him. He has a claim on us. It's a sign for the person baptized, and it's a seal for the person baptized of the covenant of grace. It's a sign of his engrafting into Christ. It symbolizes that. It's a seal that points to that. It's a sign of regeneration, and it's a seal of regeneration. Now you get down this list and you start to go, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Is everybody who gets the sign and seal actually engrafted into Christ, actually regenerated? And you go down the line, actually giving the remission of sins? No. Signs are not reality. And reality is not a sign. To collapse them is to eliminate the distinction. You can have the sign and not have the reality. You can have the reality and not have the sign. Baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of the remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. All of those things are symbolized in baptism. Which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world? Now, section two. The outward element to be used in the sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. Okay, that's the ordinary way. That is the regular way. Regular baptism is to be done by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto in the public assembly. And that's not listed right there, but that's generally the way it should be done. 
there are irregular baptisms. The basic fundamental pieces are water, Trinitarian formula, confessing the true gospel, the authority of scripture, and the work of Christ to pay for our sins. That can be more or less clearly done. To give you a sense of that, I said this to somebody else earlier today, on a basic level, there can be tons of stuff wrong. And you can still have a valid baptism. There's a historic, there's a story about Athanasius. He was a young boy. He had taken seriously paying attention in church. And he had memorized the basic instruction that was given in baptizing people. And he, along with some of his friends by the sea, were talking and going over baptism, and some of them asked to be baptized. And so they chose from amongst their group, Athanasius, to baptize. And, and Athanasius went through the basic instruction and then took water and poured it on the head in the name of the Trinity. And the local bishop, when he found out about this, inquired, asked about it, and determined that the baptisms were valid because of the gospel that was preached and the use of the water and the Trinitarian formula. And so therefore did not want to baptize those children again to avoid a rebaptism. Is that what's supposed to be done? Was Athanasius a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto by the seashore with his child friends? No. So there are many baptisms done in pools and backyards and church camps by all sorts of not lawfully called thereunto ministers. And the question is, what is the gospel preached? What God is the name assigned? And did they use water? So, if you ever hear a story about somebody being talked to suddenly by somebody saying, you should believe the Bible, you should believe in Jesus paying for your sins, and the Bible's totally true, you want to be baptized, and the guy says, yeah, and he shoots him with a super soaker in the name of the Trinity, you go, that's not appropriate. That's not the way it should go. That would be valid. So what should we do? Should we seek to have that? No. What should we seek to have? We should seek to have things properly ordered. We should seek to see this taught on well and to see the church put in good order. And we want to see covenanted uniformity throughout the land. We have to deal with carefully dealing with those things. So section three, the dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. Okay, so submersion, immersion, dipping, not necessary. Pouring and sprinkling are proper uses. And what we find is the, the Bible in Hebrews talks about the idea of the doctrines of baptisms. And we see, what are the doctrines of baptisms? The doctrines of baptisms are 
baptisms that occur throughout the Old Covenant. And so you have sprinkling with blood. You have the pouring of blood. You have the pouring of water. You have the dipping of things in water. You have the idea of sprinkling and pouring. And what we see is the stuff in the Old Covenant prophesying about the New Covenant to come talks about the idea of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Pouring is a typical assignment of the New Covenant. Sprinkling is common to the Old Covenant. What's the difference there? A little bit, a lot. A little bit of water sprinkled, a lot of water poured. That's the idea. So you might go, well, then let's do immersion. Because there's even more. With a typical sign that you find associated with the New Covenant, is pouring. Pouring out of the Spirit. That is the typical symbol assigned to the New Covenant. And all three are valid. And so all three being valid, whichever one was used historically, we need to not say that something's invalid on the basis of mode. Dipping, pouring, sprinkling are all valid. Section Four, not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. Why is that? Well, first of all, we remember the meaning of baptism. Baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, it is not the first sign and seal of the covenant of grace. It's not the first sign and seal of the covenant of grace as an entry ritual. We have prior types, right? We have in the new covenant, we have baptism as an entry ritual, and we have the Lord's Supper as a renewal ritual. In the Old Testament, we had circumcision as an entry ritual, and the renewal rituals would include, for example, all of the sacrifices. So we understand that the meaning of all of the sacrifices is captured and collapsed into the Lord's Supper. And in baptism, the meaning of circumcision, as well as any other rituals used in the induction of a person into the visible church, would all be collapsed into baptism. The persons in the church, the persons in the visible church, continue in the visible church. Unless God were to say, all of a sudden these people are kicked out. And the persons to receive a sign, an entry sign, would be the same. Unless God kicked them out or added to them. And so we have, in Genesis 17, the fact that the sign of the covenant of grace for entry was to be given to Abraham and to all of his male children and to any men who were born into his house, or bought into his house. What we find in the New Covenant is teaching about the relationship between baptism and circumcision, that they mean the same thing. We find that women are added to the recipients. One of the examples in the book of Acts is Lydia, the seller of purple. 
And in addition to that, we find that Gentiles are not to be required to be circumcised into the visible church in the New Covenant, and instead are to be added as Gentiles, not becoming Jews. And so Gentiles are to be baptized, not circumcised. And so we have the addition of women, and we have the addition of Gentiles, people from every nation. So the church goes from being a national Jewish church to an international Gentile church, along with the Jews. All of the nations, the 70 nations from the table of nations. Not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. We see as an example of how this is dealt with also the fact that in the Old Testament you would say here is a head of house or here is the matriarch or patriarch of a house and one of them makes profession and you would then see the house would join the covenant community. So with Rahab, her whole household joins. Okay. Then we also have examples of people like Uriah the Hittite coming in, or we have Ruth the Moabitess coming in. We have people entering into the covenant from outside of the covenant, becoming Jews, becoming a part of the visible church. They become national Israel as well as a part of the visible church. And now it is unnecessary to become a part of national Israel in order to join the church. But we see households. Somebody makes profession and their household joins. We see that continued in the book of Acts, where somebody makes profession and the household is brought in, and you have household baptisms. The question is not whether or not it can be proved that there were infants in those houses. The issue is, when we see all this language about household being brought into the visible church in the Old Covenant, and we see households being brought into the visible church in the New Covenant, there is no reason to create discontinuity. And so what we find is a defense of from the continuation from the Old Testament, the giving of the entry ritual into the visible church. Section 5. Although it be a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. Okay, so it's sin to hate, devalue, and neglect baptism. However, even as a great sin, that does not stop people from being saved. We are all great sinners. And so salvation is not inseparably joined with baptism, Person, persons can be regenerated, they can be saved without baptism. Also, many people are baptized who are not saved and not regenerated. Section 6. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. In other words, 
all the benefits of baptism in terms of the ways it's used for growth and sanctification and to bring blessing doesn't necessarily all come at that time. In fact, you could, years later, start to receive the blessings or benefits of baptism. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited. Okay, so offered in terms of it's presented for acceptance or rejection, and it's exhibited or displayed broadly to the world. Okay, so it's displayed for acceptance or rejection to the person baptized, and it's displayed broadly to the world to be thought upon. So the promised grace is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost. So the conferring of that grace, remember grace is an attitude in the mind of God. So when we talk about conferring grace, it's not like the attitude is leaving God's mind and going over to you. right? It's the idea of he's giving you gifts from the attitude of favor. So he has favor, he has love, he has grace, and out of that love, he is giving gifts. And so the gifts of grace from the Holy Spirit are conferred for all the elect. Those include all the benefits of the covenant. And the benefits of the covenant include regeneration, remission of sins, sanctification, and powerful gifting to do work. One of the major differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the Holy Spirit gives powerful gifts to all of you. You thought I forgot, by the way. And I sent out that Puritan thing. We're going to talk about those. We're going to talk about gifts. You need to identify your gifts. You need to talk about them. You have a duty from God Almighty to use your gifts, to use your talents, to put them to good work, to pull that plow. So these gifts are conferred by the Holy Spirit. The gifts that are promised in baptism are conferred to the elect. The grace promised not only is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongs unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in His appointed time. You think about this with the gospel, you go, you know, you, somebody hears the gospel, they might not believe it today, but maybe 10 years from now. So if somebody's baptized today, they might not display all these things right away, they might do it 10 years from now. The blessings of the ordinances of God do not always come immediately. But for all of His elect, they will come at the time of His appointment. Section 7. The sacrament of baptism is but once to be administered to any person. Now, there's an interesting proof text for this one. Titus 3.5 Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, 
here's what's happening. The Apostle Paul is talking not about physical baptism. He's talking about regeneration. He's talking about how regeneration is the reality of baptism. The washing of regeneration is the fact that regeneration is a washing. Baptismal regeneratives want to say this proves this text proves the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. They want to say, look, the washing of regeneration is the washing that brings regeneration. No, 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 that's not how grammar works. The washing of regeneration is the idea that regeneration brings a washing. It's not the idea that the washing brings regeneration. The thing that generates is the regeneration here. It's the, the, the grammar is a genitive, okay? Here's how the genitives work. If I say, I'm David of Phoenix, right, you know I come from Phoenix. If somebody said, David of Phoenix means Phoenix comes from David, you'd laugh at their face. Not in their face, at their face. Right? This is a whole new level of laughing. Because you understand the English language? Now, the washing of regeneration. If somebody says, the washing of regeneration, and then they say, the washing gives regeneration, that's like them saying, Phoenix comes from David. Okay? If they say, the washing causes the regeneration. The washing is from the regeneration. So in other words, there's a regeneration that comes. Remember we were reading in John, John 3, it says, baptism with water and spirit. Okay, the new birth, sorry, you're talking about the new birth of water and spirit, born of water, born of spirit. This is the same sort of idea. This is the idea of the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. So this is the reality. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is talked about in Titus 3, 5. And so, we see this idea that the work of regeneration washes, it cleanses a person's heart. But the inference to be drawn is, since baptism is the sign, and the reality is a definitive single event, the symbol is to be definitive and singular. Okay, that's the argument. It's the definite article in the Greek, translated the, applied to the reality, and analogically applied over to the symbol. That is the line of argument here about that. Now, there are other verses you can use. The Westminster Assembly thought that this was the best one verse to put there to prove the idea that baptism should be once. And I thought I'd run you through that delightful experience of understanding why. So, we've considered the doctrine of baptism. We're about to see baptism. And so, comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights? Okay. So, Mr. and Mrs. Walker, and any of your children that you want to come forward, necessarily including those that are going to be baptized, please come forward.
stand over here, yeah. Now, if you were joining into membership, I would administer to you the church covenant. And so instead, what I'm going to ask you to say in front of these witnesses is that you agree to the church covenant as it applies to you not being members. So you understand the obligations about conflict resolution and dealing with church government and so forth would apply where your current membership is. Okay. So, um, so Mr. Clay Walker and Mrs. Shea Walker, I'm asking you two and only you two to say I do after I ask you that question. Okay. So I'll say do you and then you say I do. Okay. So, Mr. Walker and Mrs. Walker, do you believe and promise to fulfill the church covenant of Puritan Reformed Church as it applies to you at your current church? Do you? I do. Now, we have the covenant as it applies to baptism for children. So I'd ask you both, since you're holding children, I will not require of you the raising of the hand, but this is, this is an oath as it regards the children. And so have you had the opportunity to review the covenant for the children? Okay, very good. So first, Mr. and Mrs. Walker, do you promise to diligently guard these children, both body and soul, with your own life, and to diligently disciple and discipline these children, not provoking them to wrath, but nourishing them in the instruction and admonition of the Lord by providing a godly example in the whole of life, truthful teaching in the full counsel of God, and just correction as the occasion is fitting, storing up the words of Scripture in your heart so that you may teach them to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Do you? I do. Do you believe and promise to diligently teach these children that all the statements and necessary inferences of the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the rationally coherent and infallible word of God, the very truth itself, and the only rule for faith in life? Do you? Do you believe and promise to diligently teach these children that the contents of the scripturalist church covenant of the scripturalist church covenant are accurate representations of the teaching of scripture and to demonstrate the same by careful discipleship in the word of God? Do you? I do. Do you promise to diligently teach these children to seek the knowledge of the truth to the glory of God? by both explaining and exemplifying the need to engage in both private worship and household worship, keep the Lord's Day, observe the appointed sacraments, and attend to the call of the church to gather for the worship of God and for the government of the church. Do you?
Do you promise to diligently teach these children to act according to the knowledge of the truth to the glory of God as revealed in the moral law, which is the whole duty that God requires of man, is summarized by the two great commandments, is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, and is explained accurately in the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Do you? I do. Do you promise to diligently teach these children to spread the knowledge of the truth to the glory of God by both explaining and exemplifying the need to engage in and support evangelism and discipleship in the whole counsel of God, provide a Christian education for your household and for this child, tithe to the church, and cooperate with others in the church in order to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you? I do. Do you promise to protect your household and these children from all false doctrine, all false worship, and all false or usurping human authority, and to teach these children to carefully examine the doctrine, worship, and government of the church according to scripture alone, to determine whether these marks of the church are being kept pure and entire, to submit unto the government of the church in all lawful exercises of church authority, and to refuse submission unto all unlawful exercises of church authority, to follow the biblical requirements of conflict resolution prior to separation from a church as summarized authoritatively in Matthew 18 and Acts 15 and subordinately in the constitution of the scripturalist church and to work in the church with zeal and knowledge for peace, purity, and unity in the truth. Do you? I do. Now, in baptizing... We are acknowledging these children to be covenant children, and the church has certain obligations. And so these are the promises that the church gives to these children. We promise to fulfill our duties to this child, of, of these, to these children, of seeking to support the lawful authority and duties of the father and mother by encouraging covenant keeping and submission unto Christ by the members of the household, by providing training and accountability for the parents and teaching godliness as far as we are able, not being your home church, through household discipline and discipleship, household worship and private worship, by teaching in the public worship of the church and imposing external discipline on the household to assemble. Again, we have limits because of the lack of membership by protecting these children from the sin of the parents through application and teaching of the scriptures and the diligent use of correction and of church censures as circumstances require. And we have some ability to do that with you joining at the table. That could be held if there were some sort of open sin. Two, we promise that if these children should be without father, then we will joyfully provide the orphan children and the widow mother with shelter to prevent homelessness, clothing to avoid nakedness, food to stop hunger, and drink to satisfy thirst, means and assistance to combat ignorance and unbelief under the oversight of our elders and deacons to the end that these children would think, speak, and act in such a manner as to bring honor to the name of Christ, including a Christian education and protection from false teachers and anti-Christian institutions until these children or adults or catechized and able to interact as mature believers, being ready and able to come to the Lord's table and also to defend the truth against error. Three, 
We promise that if the parents of these children are negligent in the performance of their duties, then we will correct, exhort, and assist in the bearing of their duties. But if the parents of these children are found obstinate in their refusal to perform their duties, then we will proceed with the censures of the church against them in the hope that the public use of the spiritual sword will reclaim and gain the offending brethren, deter others from like offenses, purge out a dangerous leaven, which might otherwise infect the whole lump, vindicate the honor of Christ, the holy profession of the gospel, and prevent the wrath or discipline of God from falling upon the visible church. If we should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. And so we would not have the power of excommunication unless you were members, but we do have the power of suspension from the table. And so to that extent, as we are able, we promise to fulfill those things. Now I'd like to read the word of institution for baptism from Matthew 28. And I'd like to pray. Matthew 28, verse 18. Please stand for the word of institution. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing on the baptism of Charlotte Rose Walker, on Claire Elizabeth Walker, Elijah Drew Walker, Phineas Noah Walker, and Everly Ann Walker. We ask that you would cause this visible word to be used for the blessing of the congregation and for the blessing of these children. That they would be guarded in covenant, that they would be given faith if they do not have it, and if they already have it, that they would be grown in faith and preserved in it. We ask that you would make them to be mighty, that they would be powerful in advancing the, pow- the gospel, that you would give them powerful gifts of the Holy Spirit, and that you would cause them to be an honor to the government of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. So Charlotte, please come forward. Charlotte Rose Walker, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Claire, come over. Claire Elizabeth Walker, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Elijah Drew Walker, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) 
Phineas Noah Walker, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now open your Psalters to Psalm 103 and please stand. Now first pray with me, forgive me. Father, we thank you for these covenant children and we thank you for the Walker household. We ask that you would bless the faithfulness of Mr. Clay Walker and Mrs. Shea Walker. Father, we ask that you would give them the joy of seeing their children walk in the truth. We ask that you would bless these children. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 